0: Hello and welcome to episode 5 of series 2 of the Agents of Hope podcast. I'm your host Tim Cox and today I'm really honoured and really excited um, to talk to Dr Chris Bagley. Um, we're going to be talking about challenging the educational status quo so it's going to be a, quite a broad uh, conversation I'm sure uh, but before we get into that, kind of, would you like to introduce who is Chris Bagley, You know, tell us a bit about your kind of story and the values that led you to this
1: conversation. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. It's uh, yeah, an honor also, in very interesting company. Oh, so, you. I guess it all started for me in terms of an education career after mm. my undergraduate degree. Probably like most twenty-year-old lads, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do, and. <laughs> Before that, everything had been about sport, really. I was on various cricket academies as a young man and did a sport degree at university. So there were no Mm -hmm. signs from, I suppose, those early years that I would become even an educator, let alone an an educational psychologist. Mm -hmm. But I did get involved in cricket coaching. I remember Mm -hmm. that and thinking I really quite enjoyed this, enjoying working with young people, obviously helping them to develop their skill set. And I became a classroom supervisor in a secondary school, then went on to do a graduate teacher training programme and then became a PE teacher. Mm. And it was a few years into that when I realised that actually this wasn't really meeting my needs and I actually wanted to do something a bit more cerebral and a bit more academic. Mm. So it kind of got on my horizon, the idea of doing the educational psychology doctorate and. Mm what I then started to do is teach supply in various schools. So I could teach different subjects. So I teach Mm. in all sorts of different schools and get a wide range of experience. So I worked in schools for kids with profound and multiple learning difficulties, schools for young people with autism and other specialist provisions, you know, that sort of open your eyes, don't they, when you work in those Mm. provisions to various different ways that young people present, various different ways that behavior expresses itself. And I suppose that was my, my starting point, Tim, to be honest. So a sort of mm-hmm. muddled start into mm. the conversion diploma, mm. which was done at Oxford Brookes. My undergrad was at Durham University. And then after that, it straight into it, really, got on the IOE doctorate in, I think, 2010. Mm. So qualified in 2013. So I've been a fully qualified EP now for a fully qualified EP for about eight years. Mm. So that was my sort of starting point.
0: And was there was there a time in you know when you were, you know, not on kind of the road to being EP, but you know, perhaps when you were being a cricket coach or working in those very things, where there was that light bulb moment which said, "Oh, I'm really interested in this," or there was there a specific issue that you thought, "Oh, this is something I'd really yeah. like to dig
1: in a bit further to." You know what? I think it was working in secondary schools in mm. Birmingham and what was happening I noticed was I would always have the lowest sets Mm. I'd be put with a set eight students teaching English for example or science and you can do that as a supply teacher can't you and you can sort of Mm. maraud around different subjects and I remember working with those groups of five or six to ten young people and thinking I'm quite enjoying this you know I feel Mm. like I'm connecting quite well with these young people and felt that they felt quite heard in those sessions and Mm. I felt that by creating those connections with them they were able to perceive themselves in a slightly different way and do better work and also feel quite safe and comfortable in those sessions and I remember after that thinking what about if I could focus more on this sort of work but learn a lot more about mm. this and expand my knowledge as well as working with some young people who are really struggling I guess mm. it was it was in those years I guess those couple of years then I figured out that that would be a really fascinating career you know to work with really vulnerable young people who are most marginalized in society Mm. and that's carried through my whole career really. Mm. It's it's a really interesting kind of kind of
0: narrative between I guess going for something that must be really high performing in terms of the, the cricket coaching and being in cricket academies and I guess they take that analytical view in, in sports coaching about understanding the individual uh, and applying different kind of methods to help them to take their games to the next level. And it's, you know, I think this is possibly the first time I've talked to somebody who is a supply teacher, who isn't like, oh my goodness, I didn't want to work with, with that, <laughs> get that group of children, but having that slightly different mentality about, you know, working in small groups, getting the best out of their children, developing that rapport there seems to be echoes of you know at least my experiences in kind of cricket clubs and and sports clubs that you do get that
1: yeah there's a thread there isn't there I think and you Mm -hmm. don't it's not until you talk about it that you realize there probably is a thread there and Mm -hmm. I think yeah that those formative experiences of coaching and supporting young people and also I suppose on you're learning on the job aren't you as well in sport and a lot of it is self-taught as well you know you do have some coaching but anyone who's been in slightly misogynistic dressing rooms will know that mm. people are more taking the mickey out of you than helping you most of the time so mm. you sort of have to become quite analytical don't you so I guess there's a sort of thread from that right up to well how do I analytically consider how to work with some of these quite challenging that's the language used in schools, not the word mm. I would use young people who are in bottom sets you know the ones who are I suppose the most pushed out of what we call mainstream society, aren't they? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point, Tim. I hadn't quite thought of that thread, but I'm sure I'm sure there's something to do with it, isn't it? Because it, all, mm. it has sort of gone full circle in a way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really resonated with me because I was, I, I, I kind of fell into working as a pastoral lead in a sports college. And right. I found that first year really difficult when I went in with that sort of uh, labelling, I've just come out of uni, you know i've done pretty well i went to russell group uni you know i just need to get them to behave like me and found out very quickly that that wouldn't happen and wouldn't wash uh, with 98 percent of the children that i work yeah. with because it just wasn't relevant um and i kind of worked alongside um the head of sport there uh, it was a state school but it had that kind of uh, head of a sport sort of uh, and it's kind of structure yeah. underneath it and working as a rugby coach there and working as a, a badminton and cricket and football coach in different seasons uh, with PE teachers helped me to see these children in a different way um, and see some real moments of joy when I said pastoral behavioural lead I was often seeing you know uh, weeks of dysphoria <laughs> that go alongside yeah. you know having to work yourself for a school that wasn't really working for them
1: yeah absolutely it's a good yeah. point point. Uh, and then I think about where that's emerged as an EP and I guess it didn't take that long when I fully qualified and even before I was qualified to be in those sort of spaces again so my mm. doctorate thesis was about alternatives to permanent exclusion I did a lot of interviews with school professionals, young people and parents around their experience of managed moves Mm -hmm. and that's obviously a very complex area so I think it was sort of fed in from those experiences in school right into my EP career around wanting to be working with those marginalised groups Mm -hmm. and then that sort of expanded and by the time I left my previous local authority in West, London I was in the youth offending team two and a half days a week. Okay. So, yeah, really fascinating work, really fascinating work. And I guess that really opens your eyes to the way the education system is structured Mm -hmm. and the impact that has on the most marginalised young people in society, the most vulnerable ones, the ones who are struggling in various different ways. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of... It's strange in some ways that you know those experiences of going to you know what people might turn alternative provisions or mm-hmm. provisions for children who might be excluded or specialist provisions are, are you know it really takes like a vocational agency to go to them um, or to explore yes. that um, as as professionals and reflect on it. Whereas I guess you know I certainly didn't come into to contact with lower sets within my school, Uh let alone alternative provisions until I was working in in, in kind of middle management, Mm. uh, kind of upper echelons of being a a teaching assistant um, in schools. And it it is a a shock to the system um, that everything's not as it seems for, for everybody else. I guess we do see things through quite a narrow lens of our own experience
1: absolutely um, yeah until we're faced with something else yeah and it's an often hidden phenomenon in our society isn't it so Mm. most most people are not going to come across young people who are subject to the youth justice system
0: Mm.
1: most people are not going to come across in their daily lives young people who've been excluded from school
0: Mm.
1: and particularly people who are working in the professions you're not surrounded by those people are you are surrounded often by people who you'd argue are in a similar social position to ourselves so it's really difficult to get your head around i think isn't it unless you've actually been in those rooms with these young people mm. and experienced and actually felt their distress mm. because we were talking earlier to we, about you know existential psychologists like young you know very inspiring practitioners mm. who they really help you to understand the, the absorption And the sponge-like process that goes on when you're a psychologist or even a teacher in a room with these young people who are projecting outwards and transferring their distress Mm -hmm. onto you. And then I I genuinely think until you really feel that, it's really difficult to fully empathise. I mean, obviously you can empathise. I don't know your thoughts on that, Tim, but I certainly found that when you work with people, for example, some teachers even, who haven't necessarily been in those spaces with those young people, it is quite hard to understand for obvious reasons the way that distress manifests and the impact that has on the emotional health of that Mm. child. Yeah. So I guess these are all things that were sort of with me from those teaching days, I guess, that transference. And you'll have experienced that, Tim, as you said there, in those pastoral roles. Mm. And you genuinely are able to then feel what the young person is is feeling, aren't you? Literally. Yeah. 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 Very complicated, Uh, but yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that that often, you know, the, the sense of, I guess, that that sense of transference of, of anxiety about change, particularly when you're covering a lesson.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely, covering, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a sense of you might be anxious about these children that you don't know that well or know at all, and they're yeah. anxious about this new person, a sense of working out who this person is um, and, and seeing if you can trust them. And, and that must have been something that you honed, pretty quickly and I guess that was also something as a pastoral lead um, in the kind of first few terms of me working in whatever school I was working in, I had to kind of do I had people coming to me in quite some levels of distress and with a real sense of injustice a lot of the time uh-huh. and trying to work that out in a system that I wasn't particularly uh, I was adapting to and trying not to use the system in order to manage my emotions uh, you know, and, and all those those sort of things. So, uh, empathy can be quite difficult. I think when you're in
1: difficult and kind of tran- transient roles, but definitely. And, and this is one of the yeah. things that's always struck me about the state school system in England, and that it's set up to create space between teachers and young people, mm. not to bring them together. Mm. Now, the exam system is literally designed to create winners and losers, as we know, competition. Mm and the standardization regime that young people are subject to forced onto them by teachers forced onto teachers via ofsted and accountability measures mm. makes it very difficult for teachers to actually connect on a personal level with young people so mm. young people are basically treated in a, in secondary schools in particular and to some extent in primaries because of sats mm. as functions rather than persons mm. and that's when the issues start to emerge and we're going to talk about the international spectrum later i think aren't we but what's certainly clear in england is that the standardization and competition and accountability narrative that breeds distance between students and young people it breeds systemic distrust suspicion and the young people we're working with at states of mind which again we'll talk about a lot later yeah that's what they're reporting they're reporting that Mm -hmm. they're treated as objects their identities are ignored Mm -hmm. their personal development doesn't even feature Mm -hmm. And none of this is the fault of teachers. Teachers are scapegoated by the same system that is driven to create this segregated, elitist society. Mm -hmm. And teachers have no rigour room either. And obviously some schools manage this differently. And when I was working a lot with young people subject to management and exclusions, some schools are unbelievably resilient and go against the grain. They don't introduce zero-tolerance behaviour policies. They don't exclude. Mm -hmm. And they place connection rather than things like segregation isolation and fixed term exclusions for example they place connection at the root of all of their practice and i find that amazing really because to do that in england and pull it off is not easy you know really isn't easy because the whole ideology underpinning the education system pulls you in the other direction doesn't it mm. so i guess i'm talking now Tim really about my first few years as an EP maybe this is Mm -hmm. where these ideas start to crystallize and I started to then become quite disillusioned not just with the education system but in some ways with our profession and I think there are problems within our profession Mm -hmm. in the way that we tacitly support this and we're complicit Mm -hmm. in it in my opinion and I think that'll probably be something that some EPs would disagree with but I think we were talking before the podcast weren't we about the fact that the way that our work is structured, we are unable to practice outside of this system, which we know is inherently damaging to the mental health of young people. Mm. So I guess how I've got to this point, if there's one thing, I guess it's recognizing that I didn't want to be complicit in that mm. anymore. And I wanted to try and figure out ways of working as a psychologist outside this straitjacket, rigid standardization system, which... Mm. I couldn't really justify anymore having been in a youth funding team for two or three years and listened to the damage that the education system directly does to the sh- these children. Mm. And again, that goes back to what we were saying earlier about unless you sat in those rooms with those young people and their families, it's quite hard to actually feel that. Yeah. And I, I don't know how we can get, get around that. And I guess mm. what I've been trying to do with my colleagues at States of Mind is various different projects to try and make this feel more real and Mm. to get the voices of young people out there and centred. But I think what Mm. certainly what led this as well as being sort of marinated in education healthcare plans, which Mm. individualises everything and places all the onus within the young person to change, but you're not able to write an education healthcare plan that the system needs to change. Mm. And I wonder if there's something about our profession that needs to be challenged and that we spend most of our time writing 3000 word reports that prop up this system when we could be spending those hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours thinking about how we change the system. Mm. But again, I don't think we can blame individual EBs or even EPs generally for that because we are also scapegoats of that system, aren't we? Mm. So the only way to challenge it, I guess, is to try and disrupt it and to try and present other options so I guess that probably summarises where I'm at now, Tim, maybe, yeah, in terms yeah. of my practice.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of, kind of stuff that's resonated through. And I was at the DC, DCP conference last week, perhaps last week, perhaps the week before everything's kind of melding into one at the moment. <laughs> um, but of, there was just some young people from Stakes of Mind that, that did a presentation um, about an alternative to... The current education system. And it was a, it was a strange experience um, to be sitting in this virtual room, not being able to see other people's faces, their body language, uh, their attention um, to this on an emotive level, these kind of quite visceral um, sense of injustice and anger, uh, and, and on a logical level, something that seems so practical and pragmatic um, that things could be shifted uh, in a different way, and I was kind of left with the feeling that, that was a really important presentation, but fifty minutes wasn't enough.
1: Yeah, I agree I, too. And, and it was it yes. was
0: slightly uncomfortable because I was like, I'm, I'm leaving that without having contributed, mm-hmm. without. Feeling that I've given validation or a sense that I've listened, mm-hmm. and it's something that I can just click off.
1: Sure. Um,
0: and it's it, it like it kind of it resonated with huge, lots of my values. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also kind of a sense with it, like this internal professional kind of self within me,
1: yeah,
0: which kept saying, Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, and, and having to really restrain that. And being aware that, oh, hang on, <laughs> you know, mm. three, four, five years ago, I would have been, you know, going, absolutely, yeah, this is what we need to be doing. Sure. But training in a way and working with systems and working with um, with teachers and Sankos and other people within local authority and, and kind of what Jagdish Barham would call kind of a slow cooker, relational, mm-hmm. you know, short way is has led me to a point of you know got to think of the pragmatics got to think the practicalities of it um and it was it, i I've, i left that that i clicked off um, that session feeling conflicted and um confused i, I guess there was a cognitive disson, dissonance there yeah. um of, of relating to it empathizing with it and then feeling a slight hopelessness
1: mm-hmm. uh, of it
0: so I guess what, I guess, could you kind of explore what kind of what work that you do with states of mind? Yeah, sure. And, and then we can kind of pick apart kind of challenging the educational status quo and what that means as a vision.
1: Yeah, I think I can talk about that, Tim, and then come back to the presentation that you observed yeah. the other day, because that's the latest, I guess, position statement of yeah. the young people who work with states of mind. So... I guess I've sort of given the background, haven't I, about how my thinking went in that direction. But I met the amazing founder of States of Mind, B. Herbert, through a few other people Mm -hmm. a few years ago. And we just sat down together and realised, I don't know whether you've ever you've had this thing, but you sit down with someone, you realise that you sort of have to work with them. You know, there's Mm -hmm. some synergy between your professional values and your Mm -hmm. interests and your views of the world that mean you sort of have to work together. So Mm -hmm. the first phase we did was in twenty nineteen. So our project is called Breaking the Silence, and what you observed there, Tim, at the DECP conference was the outcomes of phase two of Breaking the Silence. So the first one was in 2019, when the Ofsted consultation was upcoming, which you may remember you'd have been a trainee then, of course, and it Mm. probably wouldn't have been the highest thing on your priority list. But what we did was did focus groups with about 80 different young people, Mm -hmm. and What we use is a model called participatory action research. Now, I don't know how aware you are of that. Maybe I should explain briefly what that is, Tim, do you think? Uh,
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I know what it
1: is, but yeah. yeah. Okay. So essentially what participatory action research does is starts from a foundation whereby you don't make any assumptions about systems around the people being valid. You don't make Mm -hmm. any ideological jumps around whether or not Anything is, as it should be, or is self-evident or is common sense. And it's, I suppose, from my perspective, it's a reaction to the vast majority of education research, which tends to proceed from a position whereby the educational status quo is absolutely fine, and all we need to do is make small tweaks within it, Mm -hmm. which is a view that's held by a lot of people, and, and that's fair enough. But I guess where we're coming from is a position where we don't accept that the status quo about education is valid or worthwhile or psychologically healthy so we started from basically point 0 and what participatory action research does is positions young people as active participants rather than subjects so yeah. the young people involved in all our projects they are the ones who are leading everything from From the research questions to how the research is written up, what they want to do with that once it's written up, what the follow-up should look like. So we started asking young people about their views on Ofsted. Mm -hmm. And what emerged was a really striking picture where young people were arguing that the accountability measures that are driven by Ofsted and the DfE, of course, they lead to young people being in a position where they're memorising, not learning. They're not having any scope for personal development. Mm-hmm. They're not consenting to anything. This was the thing that really struck me, Tim. that really blew our, our minds. Yeah. Young people using this type of language, we're not planting this in their brains. You know, they're telling mm. us this. So they'd say things like, we have not at any stage ever consented to anything throughout our secondary school. Now, when you hear mm. things like that, and you think about psychological constructs like self-determination theory, and you realise that they don't have any autonomy, if they're not competent academically, that doesn't matter, no one's interested. This is how they perceive it. And there's no sense of relatedness or belongingness for many of these young people in schools. So they were talking about all these things and what we don't do at States of Mind and with participatory action research is come in with us with a language. We let them use their own language. Mm -hmm. So they were using, they even used words like alienation, um, lack of trust with teachers and students for the reasons we talked about earlier. And in phase one, they wrote a letter to Amanda Spielman and sent it. And then mm-hmm. they got a response from Matthew Purvis, who's I think Assistant Director of Ofsted, basically saying, thanks for your letter, but everything's fine. Mm-hmm. After they'd expressed very clearly that they perceived that the education system driven by accountability measures is leading to mental health problems, lack of personal development, memorization, etc. So that was phase one and phase two, Was really fascinating because then we linked up with the Institute of Education, University College London, and a really cool doctorate, uh, student called Jasper. He did phase two with another group of young people at two London schools. And in this one, we asked young people, if you wanted to ask other young people about their experiences of education, what would you ask? (laughs) So they compiled a questionnaire and they asked about what's the impact of education on your mental health? Mm-hmm. They wanted to know what's the impact of education on your personal development. They wanted to ask, how does education prepare you for real life? And you can see, Tim, the synergy between phase one and phase two. These are all things that the mm-hmm. students are wanting to ask each other. Yeah. And again, what came out of that, and Jasper did some focus groups and a quite a large questionnaire study with 400 students. We're going to hope to publish that mm-hmm. and when he finishes his doctorate, as you're probably aware, Tim, there's mm-hmm. probably a bit much on for him at the moment to do that. Yeah. But this findings were really striking so the young people were saying it damages your mental health the education Mm -hmm. system in itself damages your mental health it doesn't support personal development doesn't prepare you for real life Mm -hmm. and you know you read this stuff and you think wow you know it's very striking and then we got some really rich quotations from the focus groups where young people were saying that the education system for many young people particularly non-academic young people who aren't academic conformists who can't comply mm. who are kicked out or marginalized and even for young people who are high attaining they were finding that lots of depression huge amount of anxiety and we know about mm. we research don't we both internationally and at home and they were describing it in a very traumatic language you know in terms of the impact it has on them so phase three we're in now and this is the one that i think is probably most exciting Tim. so I'm running a session with 12 students from two different colleges and we are we've been doing this since September and what we're doing is developing a young person's version of a school evaluation Mm. so this has been a fascinating process so we started off doing what we normally do asking them about their experiences of education and the impact of that on their emotional well-being and mental health and their lives in general their relationships etc then we've shared with them all the research that we can find about the impact of Ofsted on teachers and young people. So they have a really, really in-depth knowledge of both the Ofsted framework and research around it. Mm. And next term, we're gonna do a, I think another month with them designing their own evaluation framework. And Jasper again is doing his doctorate thesis at the moment on this particular Mm. piece of participatory action research. And he's gonna be interviewing with students, Offset inspectors, teachers, running focus groups with young people, and they're going to use that data as well to inform their own framework. Mm. And that's going to be presented at our Education Futures in Action conference in July. So what hopefully is happening is we're expanding the number of young people who are becoming basically educational innovators. Yeah. And the young people you saw, to me, Regan, and Christovie they they've been involved in phase two so they co-design questionnaires and as you said Tim when you hear these young people speak they speak so eloquently so powerfully that if it doesn't give EPs cognitive dissonance you would almost argue they must be sociopathic right It's, Mm. it's the way they express themselves and the impact they say education has is quite striking so I guess that probably summarizes where we're at the moment Tim and I think the main thing that we do is all of our work positions young people as active participants
0: mm-hmm.
1: they're never subjects no um yeah. so that's that's basically where we're at and it's been amazing really
0: yeah I mean it it that it, I mean it sounds I mean an amazing colossal bit of, bit of work and um, colossal in terms of its the, the intricacy and the coherence of you know what you're trying to do and the approach that you're taking and no no shortcuts taken uh, but also kind of the weight of it in terms of like like you say it's the, the eloquence of the young people was striking but not surprising to to me
1: no not at uh,
0: all it, it, given that they've been uh, immersed in this uh, process which which played to giving them a voice, um, you know, and being agents of their own kind of uh, destiny—not to be in a kind of clichéd way, but you know, that it made me think. As you were talking, there was actually, you know, I I talk in my day to day practice as an EP with young people who have those opinions, sure, um, from yeah. from quite early from quite early on. Um, and I think there's, you know, I guess it, it makes me think of that there is an alternative. There is a big alternative. And I've become accustomed to to trying to make, it's um, you know, trying to kind of, I guess, nest, pra- you know, um, transformativism is kind of my, my outward looking vision, but there's a pragmatism to how I make that work in a case to case basis yeah. and trying to help. Um, I guess the organisation that I'm working within see a different way through that individual work and feeding that voice back into um, <clears throat> the kind of senior leadership teams that I might be might be working with and feeding back some from the things that they are also doing well, which tend to be the relational, the developing agency, developing belonging, mm-hmm. all of those things that seem to be starkly lacking in in, in the presentation uh, and what you've just told me about this kind of states of mind so so yeah, sure. a few questions so is this kind of been nationwide research is this in a specific area of the country
1: uh what are we talking about yeah at the moment because Bee's practice B does lots of other things with states yeah. of mind which we probably don't have time to go into now but her practice has predominantly been in sort of east london Mm -hmm. very the more deprived areas of East London so all the students that you met the other day and most of them are black uh black Caribbean sometimes black African Mm -hmm. mixed white Caribbean young people from Newham borough okay so we would like to expand it but obviously we're quite a new social enterprise at the moment and Mm -hmm. it's just that funding thing really we would love to do more of this sort of work in other places but I guess the thing we're quite proud of is that we've got those three young people now presenting at the education select committee next week. Mm. So that, that's powerful, isn't it? Because they are actually now, after just two phases of this, having a voice nationally, and that's really exciting. And there are other people out there doing similar things, similar, like Phoenix Education, Freedom to Learn, and others doing similar work. And I guess it's really challenging what you pointed out earlier as well, isn't it, about mm. the pragmatism that you need to hold in mind as an EP. Because Mm -hmm. if you spend your whole time focusing on the sort of stuff that the young people at States of Mind are communicating, it's very difficult to not be emotionally, I wouldn't say damaged, but affected by that, isn't it? Because you Mm -hmm. I've certainly been through this a lot, and I've had a few trainees contact me um, recently talking about being on the doctorate and having that really strong cognitive dissonance in about year two Mm -hmm. when they go out and they realise that, all the systemic thinking they're doing in lectures all the learning about existential psychology etc is not applicable in a lot of their casework mm. you know so you're forced into this straitjacket aren't you to some extent of almost literally writing reports that are the gateway to young people receiving support and that support mm. is often TA support or learning support system support. And we know from the psychological research from Peter Blacksford's research and others that that actually leads to regression often with a lot of young people and not support. But we're so hemmed in by this narrative and this oppressive education system that we're surrounded by that it's difficult then to practice, feel okay about it and not accept some level of indoctrination. Because you you have to be and I'm a subject to that as everyone. I have to write I was writing education and healthcare plan today, Tim, to, as mm. I'm sure you and, were. As, as I, yeah. Exactly. And it's mm. one of those things where I just wonder if, as a profession, and this is my personal view, and many people might not share this view, whether we need to be a little bit more challenging mm. towards the DFE, towards the officer framework, and mm. towards the way education is positioned in this country. Mm. I and mean, I, mm. I think we're too meek personally, would be my argument. I think we could do yeah. more. And I don't, I'm not trying to shame EPs, by mm. any means. I just think when you hear this stuff day in, day out, that young people are experiencing and the solutions they're presenting, which are entirely achievable, aren't they, as you mm. heard in in their session, it's difficult to not feel that there's more we could do, basically, yeah. as a profession.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of as you were talking there, <clears throat> I was just kind of thinking about um, that experience of training and it doesn't stop at training i don't think that you know what gets put in the back seats when your learnings become competent at the administration of a role and what stays in that back seat as you learn to handle the caseload and then you know, at what point does that you know how big is that back seat uh, and actually do things slide out of that um as things go on and you no know, people you know you know ep's developers have lives have children exactly move around all of those sort of things and um yeah i think there's there's an element of ep life, which is we have a huge amount of autonomy compared to a lot of other professions about how we think but we've got to funnel it into the system that we're in
1: exactly uh, and, and, and that's uh, contradictory isn't it when you think mm-hmm. about that because you we are both independent and entirely straight jacketed mm. at the same time. And that's a contradiction that we have to live with, isn't it? I, think. Mm. And I think. And I think that's a function of the way the education system has been developed over 200 years, isn't it? So, mm. from its inception in the <coughs> 19th century, you know, mm. it's, always, it's always been designed to deliberately separate young people essentially into three different groups which were deemed at the time to be naturally occurring, Mm. propped up by an exam system, which to this day really is something that recreates the hierarchy, doesn't it? And is extremely Mm. pernicious in terms of what it does to young people's sense of self. Mm. And again, we're complicit in that. So Mm. I guess what, all I'm trying to say here is that I think as a profession, we could do more by challenging some of these systems and I've done a lot of work over the years with organizations like No More Exclusions and Psychologists for Social Change Mm -hmm. and therefore there are lots of psychologists out there challenging systems it just feels to me a little bit at the moment like it's a very 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 small minority and again Mm -hmm. I don't begrudge that because like you said a lot of EPs they they have families. Yeah, so it's not it's not simple at all. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean,
0: I do, I do some some work with some community organisers. Um, and one of the kind of pillars of community organising is that you need activists, and you need institutions, and you need the relationship between both of those. Um, but you need to get to a point where, um. You need to be have the community and the people in positions of power sat at the same negotiating table. Otherwise, community is going to be on the menu of that of that negotiating negotiating table. And you no, know, that that is something that um you know has those ideas about community organizing and I guess my um despair at I guess traditional political ways of thinking and ways of trying to get change having started work in education in 2009 and seeing that shift from every child matters to mm. ev- every grade matters um yeah I mean it's it, there, there is a if I you know if I go back to that back seat of you know there is a very strong sense of injustice and we talked about Tony Benn before we came on about that kind of the the flames of injustice and the flames of hope having to go together and what i found is that for the profession that i'm working in now it's the flame of hope which is more palatable and relatable uh, and pragmatically useful but we've got to keep this idea of injustice there and not just shun that and be completely kind of solution focused in, in a yeah in a practical way because otherwise we just you know we either completely shun the idea of this sort of burning injustice going on Mm -hmm. in front of us um or or we we douse other people's genuine and righteous anger about
1: their situation. Yeah very complex very very complex and I guess I'd suggest there's there's an enormous amount of hope in England though in terms of forward thinking and change making Mm. so there are there are communities in for example manchester where communities and schools are coming together to form systems that are i suppose moving towards the construction of a learning community Mm. where you have a much more seamless um, interaction between local communities and schools and there there have been recently open schools in, in england as well that have shunned the idea of the exam system and are taking a completely different approach mm. and there are other organizations you know states of mind being one that are that they're, they're out there that are trying to co-create what alternatives could look like alongside young people and i think my long-term hope for states of mind is that we can work with some of these practitioners and that's the point of a new round table that we're hoping to start next mm. year, next academic year called Education Futures in Action, is to bring together some of these big change makers in, in England to try and figure out what that could look like. Because mm. one, of, there are many strengths to the UK system, I and mean, I, we could probably talk about international ones in a minute and that could be interesting. Mm. But the, some of the strengths of the UK system are, home education is very much something that is allowed yeah. and is thriving in many places and there's no reason you couldn't potentially bring some of those home educating families together under the auspice of a learning community and think about an entirely different way of educating outside the current state system there are the community linked schools which people like luke billingham are doing excellent work on and there's some amazing academics like michael fielding and martin mills who've done a lot of thinking about what this might look like and then you've got all these smallish groups who are doing things like unschooling, like freedom to learn and Phoenix education. And there's little pockets of fascinating practice out there that are largely hidden, obviously, from the mainstream of society because you know the media were educated in the same education system we were, Tim, and they've all done okay about it. You know Most of them are, to be frank, white middle-class people who haven't necessarily been marginalised or otherwise... Negatively affected by the system as it stands, and hence don't necessarily see the need for a change. And, you know, possibly the strongest underpinning ideology that is mostly unconscious about education is power, isn't it? It maintains the same power discrepancy that we have now. And I guess I think the hope there is in all those many, many different groups around that are doing fascinating work and bringing that together. And I think that's what I would like to do over the next few years. obviously a lot of other people and it's going to take a you know really strong group effort and it these things take time you know so payment by results Mm. through examination first came in in 1862 Mm. and it's barely changed in terms of the way it's monitored and the way it's countable and that's shows you how difficult change is Tim, doesn't it you know that's more than 150 Mm. years ago so yeah very challenging but other countries have done it other countries have made huge shifts Mm. and this might be an opportunity to chat a bit about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, just just thinking about the, what, what you're saying with England, there's a lot of kind of visionary ways, hopeful ways forwards, and um, you know, I haven't come across a lot of those um, people that or groups that you're talking about. I, I remember being very struck. I read a, a Carla's book about um, race and empire and class. Natives. Yeah. It's I, a good I, book. I, and he talks about um, kind of Caribbean Saturday schools, yeah, as a kind of seamless thing between the community and education and, uh, and aspiration, which is totally against the, the narrative about that, that culture. I just thought, well, that's that is a that's a great idea, um, and it's it is. happening. So, that, so there is,
1: You know, we're not talking about something whimsical and just ideological. We're don't forget, Tim, the, yeah. there were Saturday schools in England from yeah. the 1970s onwards because Bernard Coard wrote a fascinating book called, I think the exact title, I might be getting this wrong, is something called "The Why Are Black English Children Educationally Subnormal? Mm. I read it mm. years ago. I don't know whether you've read that. but
0: I've,
1: I haven't read it. I've, I've seen a lot ri- written about it on Twitter yeah. in, in recent weeks. In recent weeks, yeah. There's been a, an event, wasn't there, recently mm. about it. But on the back of that and even before that there were many 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 groups of predominantly afro-caribbean but to some extent mm. also asian and black african groups self-educating mm. as their children were pushed out of mainstream society and obviously they had their differences some of them were more religious based some of them were sort of recreating the same education that you'd have in mainstream schools in the saturday schools mm. others were more overtly political and there were obviously huge clashes of thinking and ideology there but yeah, the, these things are always happening. I guess it's just getting them out there, isn't it? You know, and making mm-hmm. sure that they're centered and making sure that they're perceived in a way that means this is a possibility, it's not utopia. You know, this no. this is very possible. It's not just possible, it's happening and has happened and will continue to happen. And I just think it's education is almost like a religion. It's hallowed ground. Mm-hmm. And to be part of it, to be a teacher or a psychologist within it, Tim, as you pointed out earlier, you've got to swallow the ideology to some extent Mm. just to get through it, just to be feel okay about it. And, you know, when you speak to teachers, who have left the profession, many of them will suggest that the reason they've left the profession is because they came to a realization that what they were doing was either not helpful or actively harmful, Mm. you know? And that's I mean, not to suggest that teachers are bad people. There's some amazing teachers out there.
0: Oh
1: yeah, who we work. Yeah. We work with every week, you know. Yeah. And it's it goes it goes back to the earlier point, isn't it, about they're scapegoated mm. to keep I mean, this power hierarchy where it is. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it almost feels treacherous as an edu- e- education psychologists to speak out about education. And actually, well, actually, you know, my. I guess my perception of what education is, is like draw some kind of power-free air and, you know, thinking about it not being banking education and all of mm-hmm. these sort of things. But unless we continually have the conversation where we get those ideas out and, and really talk about them, it's really hard to keep it live. Um, and it's not treacherous, it's, it's progressive. Um, yeah, you know, I certainly think. And, you know, there is this sort of tacit sort of, uh, almost cliche or meme about school for a lot of children that it's about getting your head down and just getting it done. That mm-hmm. is so uh, dreary. Fabricious. Yeah, it's just so dreary <laughs> yeah. to to have to for that to be an accepted way to to see school. It's in our children's literature. It, it, it's an undercurrent. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and there's a sort of well, it was worse when for every generation, where they um, say, well, you know, be a corporal punishment or something like that.
1: But that's not a reason not to make it better now. No. And that's Uh, something that the young people at States of Mind would have mentioned in their presentation, isn't it? Yeah. That this argument is absurd, that we shouldn't just accept what we have now, look at the mental health statistics around young people now, look what Mm. the good, good childhood reports are saying consecutively about young people's experiences of school. So it's not good enough, is it, to just say just because I was caned in 1963, that everything is gravy now. Um, But that is an argument that's made, isn't it? And yeah, I think the fact Mm. that it's hallowed ground, it does make it difficult to challenge. And because it's a core belief that this is what education is, I'm Mm. sure you all have seen plenty of Twitter spats over the last few years. And you do come under attack quite a lot for suggesting that the status quo isn't working. Mm. And people take it very personally so it's very complex
0: yeah i mean when, the, state, when the status quo is paying the wages i think it, it it is that or or it's the 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 money or the status or the power that comes with that linked with something mm-hmm. deep with it deep within you um which may not be about the state of education but might not be but might be about the state of your finances or your personal ambition or whatever you know we what i really love about what you're saying that's you know the state of state of mind way is that you never put the the child's views in the back seat it's always in the passenger if not on driving you along um so that's really good so we kind of you've kind of mentioned a few times about kind of there being evidence for there being a viable alternative that's being played out in in different countries could you just (laughs) Unpack that a little
1: bit. Yeah, so I've spent a bit of time reading and talking to educators in different countries. So, probably the three I've become most familiar with are Portugal, Italy, and Finland. They're all very different. Mm. But this started from some of the frankly ludicrous commentaries about exclusions that you get on Twitter and social media around the fact that they are self evidently common sense, they have to exist. Otherwise, young people are going to be mm-hmm. horrifically unsafe and the education system will fall to its knees. I mean, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating there, that. That's the sort of level of language that is sometimes used. Mm-hmm. And what I found was going in through Mel work, who's a really interesting practitioner at Glasgow mm-hmm. University. He's done a lot of work with UNESCO. And around the Salamanca Statement of Inclusion in the 90s and building on that, which many EPs will know about, mm-hmm. he's opened my eyes through connecting with him to educators in different countries and different articles by people like Inez Alves about Portugal, Hydran Demo about Italy. And I called up the father of Portuguese inclusion, as he's known, David Rodriguez, mm-hmm. and had an absolutely fascinating conversation with him for about an hour trying to unravel what it is about Portugal that made UNESCO flag them up as being one of the most inclusive countries in the world educationally and a few things really really stand out and when you compare it to England obviously you can't just drag and drop cultures from one country to another but what you can do is look at practices that go on in any system elsewhere can't you and you can draw from it and you can Gather insights from it. So, what he essentially told me, and what Ines Alves's really interesting articles do, and I can post them, Tim, after if people want to read yeah. them. They talk about the fact that diversity is a central tenet of their education system, whereas in England, segregation is very central tenet So, just mm-hmm. to give an example, they call it in Portugal. They don't call it inclusion. They call it each and every child. Mm-hmm. And what's meant by that is. There's a real drive from the bottom, from the, sorry, from the top down, to not just include young people, because inclusion comes with this idea that there's something specific that the child must be included within, that the child can be forced to be included, mm. which often results in coercion. That's not how Mary Warnock wanted it in the 70s, but that's how it's become in England. In Portugal, it's all about tailoring the curriculum very specifically to individual children. What that looks like is they'll they'll all do the same, ostensibly the same task. But what they'll do is each young person will have a slightly tweaked version of what that task might look like, which can draw on their strengths, which, which can draw on various different ways of being, thinking, recording that mm. don't necessarily have to be standardised. So the topics are relatively standardised, but the way the young people m- approach the topics and the way that they're evaluated on those topics isn't standardized and almost all assessments formative rather than summative right so that's a hugely different Mm. way of approaching it isn't it and also there are other aspects to it around for example the training of SENCOs Mm. so there are hundreds and hundreds I think thousands even of SENCOs who have three years extra training in Portugal around things like special educational needs, mental health, et cetera. And when you compare that to England, where many Sankos we work with, they don't really get much at all Tim, do they? they don't get an enormous mm. amount of extra training. They're just thrown in at the deep end. And they also employ specialist teachers alongside classroom teachers to work with young people who have whatever difficulties they might have, the full range. There are only mainstream schools, no alternative provisions, no exclusion on the statute book. Right. And those things are not coincidences, are they? When you think about the way I've just explained that, it's a very different approach. So that's Portugal, and I've obviously very briefly explained that. Italy is slightly different, but they banned all forms of school exclusion in 1977. Right. Again, they have disability teachers, they call them, who work alongside classroom teachers to work with young people of all ranges of need, from quite severe need all the way up to some young people who just have some moderate learning difficulties. And there are problems with that system in that the way that's decided is done using diagnostic frameworks, as in they have to be labeled. Mm. So there are certainly issues with that, Tim, aren't there? From a psychological perspective, the validity of labels and what that does to a young person. But their approach, again, is very, very different in that their version of exclusion, inclusion, sorry, is about full integration. Whereas in an English context, Inclusion is often characterised more by absence than presence, isn't it? Mm. Which is why you have these bizarre situations where I walked past a young person a couple of years ago and I said, where are you going, Tom? And he said, I'm going to the inclusion zone because I've been excluded.
0: Yeah.
1: And you get into these horrible language traps, which goes back to that cognitive dissonance that we were talking about earlier. Very different approach in Italy, therefore. And I guess to marry those two things up, there's an enormous amount of extra funding and resourcing goes into supporting young people with diverse needs there's a celebration of diversity and they don't call it inclusion they call it integration and Mm. um, each and every child so extremely different frameworks for how you work with young people Mm. and obviously those systems have their problems but again in italy the way they assess young people's progress is very different some of it's through talking so interviews sort of you know presentations Mm. And they have a much more clearly defined vocational track as well as an academic track, mm. unlike in England where it's sort of these days it's the academic track or nothing, isn't it? So David Rodriguez, yes. this, David Rodriguez described the English system as a recipe for explosion, which I thought was an interesting, interesting mm. quote.
0: I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I haven't heard about the Portuguese education system before. I have, I think it's in possibly Russell Brand's talked about it when he or wrote about it when he was writing about his addiction about their model of yeah. uh, uh, how they treat people with drug and alcohol addiction as you know as people who can be helped to um integrate with society and there's this idea of uh including not not sending them away not criminalizing them yeah. um and there seems to be this sort of what you were saying there about the education system seems to like resonate absolutely with, with that idea is that it's not about separating people, everybody's to, together. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, people are given kind of specialist support to help them to be within that community.
1: Yeah. Um So that's there, very interesting. There are political reasons as well, which is fascinating. And as you would expect, I mean, Portugal was under a dictatorship until the 1970s mm. and I think, potentially what can happen after you come out of that is there's a sense of camaraderie and togetherness, potentially, this is just a hypothesis mm. that emerges unlike what we have in England, where we have we had a British Empire that allowed the elites, the bourgeoisie and the upper class to entirely dominate society, but in a relatively pernicious way, using things like class snobbery and scientific mm. racism, that just simmered away in the background. You know, there were no big shifts or so no huge revolutions or anything like that and i think finland's probably quite similar You know, it was under soviet rule for many years and education emerged at the end of that period in a very different way to the way it's developed in england so i'm certainly not suggesting tim that you can just copy education Mm. cultures just trying to suggest that there are different ways of doing it that can be significantly more humane less Mm. segregationary and much more i'd suggest friendly towards diversity, you know?
0: Yeah, but I I think what you're saying about both the Portuguese and the Italian system are, they are reasonable, they are, to use our language, reasonable adjustments Mm -hmm. um, to to an environment. And we have specialist teachers. We have all the tools. We do. Um, So it comes back to a state of mind, I guess. Yeah. So, So
1: how is the Finnish
0: system... Different from those two? Was it similar to the Portuguese and Italian systems?
1: There are a lot of similarities with the Portuguese system. Mm. Um, and I guess the main thing that's similar, the thing that's probably most positive about it, is that I'd like to raise today anyway, because obviously we talk for hours about that, couldn't we? But the assessment regimes and the way that young people are evaluated, I think, is very, very different. Again, it's mostly formative. There's no high stakes assessments till young people are 18. And even at that point, Young people have either gone down a vocational track at 16 <laughs> or an academic track. And some years, if you read Pasi Sol- Solberg's work, some, sometimes more young people take the vocational track than the academic track.
0: Mm.
1: I'm told by people who are from Finland and live there that there is still some hierarchy and young, young people who take the academic track are more likely to obviously then be in, be in employment and professions that, where they earn more. But in terms of the valuing of diversity and tailoring curricula to suit young people's needs, strengths and interests, Finland is probably ahead of anyone there. And they've got a whole research base, which is underpinned by this construction called collective sense making, which I've been extremely inspired by over the Mm. years. And I don't know whether you're aware of this, but what they tend to do is when they're going to make education shifts in policy, what they'll do is bring together stakeholders from all different groups, young people, parents, teachers, professionals, and they'll engage in basically focus group conversations. Mm. And the universities and the school system are very, very closely linked. And there's a lot of trust in that society. So when those things come together and it's evaluated and analysed, policy making is significantly more democratic. Obviously, that's easier to do in a much smaller country with a much smaller population, But what they essentially do is they give control to teachers to manage the curriculum. The curriculum from the government's perspective is a guide, not a script. That's the way they describe it in their Mm. literature. So teachers are empowered. And once teachers are empowered, they can then celebrate diversity. They can then Mm. work with young people in much more interesting ways. There's no pressure of academic results so that they can experiment. They can be creative. They can develop relationships with other students. And when you look at the OECD data about where young people in England are in terms of fear of failure, in terms of school belongingness, in terms of school anxiety, and you compare that with places like Italy, Finland and Portugal, it doesn't look good. And the reasons for that are the reasons that the young people at States of Mine are telling us over and over and over again, which are being almost entirely ignored by central government, which is why we're thinking about how do we action this outside the state apparatus Mm. Because if you look at the history of English education, we were by far the latest European nation to have a fully compulsory state system
0: Mm.
1: by a long way. And even when it came in, it's always been exceptionally class conscious. And that's so embedded that it's very unlikely, in my personal opinion, that any government is going to have the balls and the wherewithal And perceive themselves to have the political clout to shift things that big at national level that's my personal opinion there's a lot of my colleagues don't agree with that but that doesn't mean from my perspective we shouldn't challenge the government status quo because if you don't challenge it at all then surely you're missing a trick there so i think the sort of the two branches of it are trying to challenge the government status quo but also trying to Recreate in a democratic, consent-driven way what education might look like. Aside of that, mm. yeah.
0: I mean, I, while you're talking there, I was just kind of thinking about, um, yeah, how our, yeah, how our system is is set up to, you know, there there are some young people who just find it very difficult to to just, I guess integrate into our thing because it's so exclusive and mm-hmm. set up in a certain way and then there's other young people who are very successful in that system and adhere to its values mm-hmm. and take on its tacit messages mm-hmm. um, and then when they leave that system find that very difficult to assimilate to, to real life and just thinking of you know that was certainly my experience coming out of state school, uh, into university and it was only at the end of university going into into employment that I just felt actually not everything not we're not in this kind of progressive society where everything is always better than it's ever been um and even just that that realization that and, and partly that came from and was reinforced by Ken Robinson's video about the, you know the, the murder yeah. of creativity within British education system um that really formalized my understanding Mm -hmm. of that but that caused a huge amount of you know that you know I experienced a lot of depression off the the back of that right Uh, I I kind of real existential fall in in terms of actually everything that I believe and projected towards and make this you know my sense of thrownness doesn't make doesn't make sense because I've never engaged with myself to have self-development Mm-hmm. Um, to really grapple with something, to become really good at something, rather than just yeah. coasting. So I think it can. I think what you're saying is that there's this need for for structural and systemic change, and the conversations need to be had not just within the system, but outside of the system as well. And just thinking about you know branching out, I, I, I would have thought if you talk to students now, how, what their experiences of education are, as I'm talking about. University students, yeah, they probably feel very let down by the lack of follow through on on the narrative that they probably be given going into those uh, universities, yeah. and those people graduating into now what will be a mm-hmm. post
1: pandemic. That's true, trend. Tim. Yeah. And when when you speak to, we predominantly work at States of Mind with seventeen year olds, and when we yeah. ask them about that. They say exactly what you just said. They're not stupid. They've looked into the figures. They know that having a degree doesn't make you more likely to get a job anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that they're contending. With. They know that the system is a sham.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It doesn't help them to find a job. It's just, again, it's hallowed ground. It's just something that you have to do. And another branch of what we're looking at at the moment is thinking about things like the Center for Business and Industry, the CBI. What is it they say they want from employees? Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is innovators, problem solvers, people who can relate to other people, and creativity. Mm-hmm. And when you when we have some of our participatory action research, we present that to children who are 17 and just say, what do you think of this? You can imagine what their response is in terms of what their mm-hmm. education is giving them to meet those needs. And you can sort of see that slight sense of concern and the fact that they they've been sold a dummy that's how they perceive it and Mm. sounds like you had that very experience, Tim. so it's one of those things that that it's difficult to yeah it's difficult to experience that isn't it when you sort of you're almost living in a in a world that isn't the world you're told it is it's a little bit of an Mm. adjacent fantasy world that is created over here
0: yeah i think i think what i i mean i I I I can speak from a lot of privilege. I think that's... I can have that narrative. I can have that, yeah. that idea. And it's not necessarily particularly helpful because what I think I came out of the state school system was, although I wasn't a hard worker, I came out with that sort of pizzazz, that sort of... I, I, can, be, I can be a problem solver. I can do all of those things. But what yeah. I had never done would work hard at something. Right I, I, I put those two things together. I remember watching some documentary about exactly that about employers wanting people with a certain kind of attitude and way of being, mm-hmm. which led to um, you know working class children who've been taught to work really hard all of the time, then not yeah. coming across well in in interviews because they've been prepared for having to fit to this curriculum yeah. rather than developing these kind of absolutely kind of skills. So absolutely, yeah, I mean. I think we could probably talk for a long time about the kind of injustices and the the I guess the difficulties of this and the kind of how this is structured within our society. But given this um, podcast is about hope, um, absolutely. Let's what, not go down that route. Yeah. What what can what can we do then? What what can we do to to make things better than they are now? As a, as EPs or as a society as, generally think. Uh, well, let's start with uh, EPs and then shift to those kind of wider wider society mm-hmm. things.
1: I guess as EPs, I wonder whether one of the things we could do is be more challenging towards some of the systems that are fundamentally marginalising. So, for example, simple things, Tim, like in a planning meeting with a school, mm-hmm. asking about how many young people are being, have been fixed term excluded mm-hmm. and try and get a handle on whether there's a role for you there to work with those young people because as you know that that isn't often the work that's prioritized by schools and if you don't ask about that and delicately raise that issue in planning meetings you might not get to meet those young people and those are the young people who are most Mm -hmm. likely to then be failed by the education system so that's a small thing you can do and I guess there are other little things at that ground level you can do like build relationships with the head teachers you're working with and when you're working with really vulnerable young people humanizing that person to the head teacher in conversations with them I found Mm. is really powerful because again I'm going back a bit here Tim to my work around exclusions over the years and working with young offenders but what you'll tend to find is that those young people are perceived and constructed because of the way the system operates by head teachers as numbers yeah they're going to pull their grades down but if you speak to that head teacher and you talked about that young person's humanity did you know that this young person Mm -hmm. is experiencing domestic violence when they go home? did you know that this young person has been stabbed do you know you know you you can sort of shift narratives there because as you'll be aware one of the things that happens in schools is you get the development of these systemic myths about young people yeah and it becomes a, the danger of a single story in the end. And Jimanda Adichie wrote, did an amazing TED talk, I don't know whether you know her a Nigerian writer about the danger yeah. of a single story, which is fascinating and I, I always reminded me of that. But what you'll find when you speak to young people, and you will definitely have found this as well, is in secondary school context, there will be some parts of that day or that week when they are succeeding. Mm. But those parts of the week, they don't usually form that single story. The part of the story that tends to be highlighted and drawn upon and re-emphasised over and over again is when it goes really badly wrong, when they swear at a teacher or flip a table or punch someone. And I think as EPs on that, again, that ground level in those schools, we can be really powerful advocates for shifting those narratives, can't we, around individual young people and trying to prevent those systemic negative myths occurring. Mm. So I think that's something we can do at sort of school level. At broader level, I think one of the things we can do as a profession is try and get into those spaces where we can use our skills to do some of this more trans- transformational work. You know, there are roles out there, you know, so obviously I managed to find some space and states of mind. There are loads of other organizations out there who, if you go to them first and have conversations with them, figure out what you might be able to offer, there is funding out there to do this sort of work. So, mm. the only reason I'm working for States of Mind really at present is because I met B. We thought we could do some work together. We started applying for funding. We got the funding. Here we are. Mm. Now, I'm not special. You know, anyone can do that. Any EP can do that. So, I think there are huge opportunities to be involved in those spaces. And being involved in it is amazing, really, for me professionally and also in terms of, I guess, the capacity to be a forward thinking ep you really can really see that the system can change mm-hmm. when you're in these roles so i guess at more systemic level you can do that certainly yeah. and i guess for me that would be the thing that could potentially be the most impactful really is if, if we as a profession can get more into those spaces away from writing those statutory assessments yeah i think we could have a much bigger impact yeah absolutely i think
0: you know that's certainly been my experience of the first eight months of my professional life is that although the day job and working with school staff and um, young people has been really rewarding in some senses it has come with its own difficulties and it really resonated what with what you said about humanizing young people as being a really important thing And I think that's you know going back to my core values and why I talk about hope a lot is that hope is something that both people can understand
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know trying to work on <clears throat> working towards the hope together yeah. as a central value of what people think education should be about and then setting the wheels in motion that way And I find that's sort all of quite often quite a helpful way to frame it um, but also, also kind of the work I've done with the community organisers at Citizens UK has been really helpful to, to hear that the ideas that I have quietly in my education profession run rampant elsewhere and yeah, people yeah. are really enthusiastic and will, uh, you know, can get funding to fund projects that people do together. And, you know, I've been able to develop training around hope and using person centeredness and person-centered planning tools uh, to help communities uh, think of a way to recover from COVID, and help refugee families settle into their communities. Um, you know, for hundreds hundreds of people nationwide, and that's been a really great experience to me
1: and given me lots yeah, of yeah, t- sounds amazing different, different perspectives. Um, but I'm hoping you, you have been using your mm. skills then in other areas, Tim. So that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. You know, I think I just wonder if there are a lot of other EPs out there who don't necessarily think they can or Mm. don't know where to look or aren't sure where to get started with that and maybe think it's a bit of a risk. But I don't know what your perception is, but I perceive that it's it's kind of a risk, but, you know, Mm. you you can you can sort of spy out the role from a distance, can't you? And then if you Mm. get into a space where you're able to use that role, you can then pull out of your mainstream EP work, you know. So I don't know. That was I don't know what you think, but I think it's not just possible, but something that's very very workable.
0: Yeah I mean I think um, you know I, I guess how I did that was I was volunteering with Citizens UK or Citizens Tyne and Weir right. whilst, I, whilst I was a, a TEP sitting on their mental health action team um, thinking about how we were going to bring local authority figures to the negotiating table and Uh, And you know we had 17 asks, and we got—I think we got them all fulfilled in the end. But that's really impressive to get 17 done. Wow! But what we, what I noticed, and what I noticed that kind of we can be, we can be part of communities that that bring power holders to accountability and to negotiating table. That's Mm. one thing that EPs can do. But also we 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 bring a psychology of how people work together how people can be together in in an inclusive, helpful way, which helps people to work on things which are difficult and challenging and go against the grain. And so I found that actually my my valence in, within the national structure of Citizens UK became about how do we think about what we do in a person-centred way, which helps us to value absolutely everybody who's in our teams and the people we're negotiating with, and set goals, and think about how we can develop agency. Um, and that's something that's fell very nicely into, in, into my skill set because that's something I've been thinking about in schools. And then you've got these communities that are really uh, open to that and really want to listen, aren't, aren't sitting in the trainings after a full day at work. And it's just like, oh, not another inset. These are people who will go and run with these ideas Mm. um, and are hungry for them. So I think, although we are education psychologists, if we can take away the straitjacket of we are just within the system, and actually education is about aspiration, being together, forming a community that works for everybody in it, then we open ourselves to lots of different types of work. And I know that there's some ep services which are set up like that uh solihull for example but yeah um there are opportunities for there certainly are work with communities in a very direct and um and a way that fits both people's needs and skill sets
1: definitely i think that's a really good description there tim of how you've used your psychological knowledge within a very different context mm. but be able, being able to sort of inspire not just organizational change but also the growth of agency within those organizations mm. and I guess that's one of the values of psychology isn't it we, we're really good at understanding things like I mean the my framework is always self-determination theory I just think the mm. evidence base for it's very strong isn't it yeah. and the ideas of competence autonomy and relatedness are very easy to get your head around and Things like that are not things that often organisations outside of education and even many schools in education haven't heard of, have they? So if you bring these sort of ideas, it can be really powerful, can't it? And you can make a really big impact.
0: Yeah, and people are are starving for people to talk about those yeah. things in a relational way and, you know, it, you know you, you've just got to look at controversial but hugely popular figures like Jordan Peterson, who are talking about encouragement or agency, and people lap it up, but we can do it in a more, I guess, kind person-centered <laughs> yeah. um, approach, and people are, want to listen to it and, and want to uh, uh, to hear about it and hear about how that relates to, to their lives. So I think there's, uh, um, Alan de Porta talks about you know uh, <laughs> psychology and the way that we uh, view things if we use the kind of religious framework of doing things in ritual and talking about things in community, mm-hmm. then that will spread the, the, the value and the, the effectiveness of our work far beyond our day-to-day um, rituals that we, we we engage in and the structures and straight that, that
1: that frame that. I like that. That's a really interesting framework. Mm-hmm. I have thought of it like that.
0: But yeah. So I, I guess we're, Kind of I'm I'm aware that I've taken a lot of your time <laughs> in there, Chris. But I you know, I guess we're coming to the to the end of, of our conversation. And I'm wondering, do you have any kind of concluding remarks or um thoughts coming out of this conversation about you know what what next or what you've taken from it?
1: I think it's been really interesting to distill all the participatory action research into a conversation so mm. i really appreciate the opportunity to do that tim because i haven't actually talked the whole process through with anyone before so I've, that's been really helpful mm. and hopefully quite interesting yes definitely. and i guess if there's one thing i would like to end with it's the states of mind breaking the silence project is going to continue we're going to have another phase next year and we're having a conference in july called education futures in action Mm -hmm. We've got Professor Kenneth Gergen coming to present, Sherto Gill from UNESCO, who we've started linking in with at States of Mind. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, The father of Portuguese inclusion, David Rodriguez, is speaking, and lots of groups of young people from each phase of Breaking the Silence. So it'd be amazing if EPs wanted to come along. And also, if people want to get involved with States of Mind, just go to the website, drop us an email. We're Mm -hmm. mad keen to be involved with any EPs or any other practitioners who want to be involved. And I guess just to finish, I think it's been a really powerful experience being involved in participatory action research. Mm. And I think what it does that's so transformative is it gives a space for young people to actually consider their deeper emotional experiences <laughs> and express it in their own words without needing to go to a medical professional. Yeah. And that's the thing that's been so powerful about it. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be really fascinating to hear other EPs views on it, actually on some of the work we've been doing. And I'd, I'd love to have start a dialogue with more members of our profession. Cause I think as you beautifully explained a, a minute ago, Tim, there's an enormous amount we can offer and your approach to doing it has been very different to mine. And, and, it, and again, that's a strength, isn't it? So you've used yeah. very different frameworks to work in some of these spaces and yeah, I think we're a great profession. We have an enormous amount to offer. And I don't think we should let ourselves be straitjacketed.
0: And I think that's a fantastic place to finish. Thank you, Chris. It's been uh, energising and um, yeah, it's brought up a lot of things for me. And I feel focused and um, yeah, reinforced in my attempts to challenge the status quo. So thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate it.